Hello, everyone. My name is Caroline Margolis, and welcome back to the Librarians by the Sea podcast. Today, I'm interviewing poet and author Amy Kwan Barry, who is a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin Madison. And her book is about a fictionalized 1989 women's field hockey team. The book is called We Ride Upon Sticks. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Librarians by the Sea podcast. Today, I have with me author and professor Quan Barry. Hi. All right. So Quan wrote a book and also many, many books of poetry and is featured in magazines and other writings and has written two books now. Yes, two novels. Two novels, yeah. And today we're going to talk about her most recent novel, We Ride Upon Sticks. Yes. Yeah. Hey, fabulous. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time and for reading my work. Thank you for being here and writing such a wonderful book. To give people a little spiel about the book, We Ride Upon Sticks takes place in Danvers, Massachusetts, and focuses on the 1989 field hockey team, which I think was your hockey team, although field hockey team, although this is a fictionalized version of that. Yes. Yeah. I played field hockey starting in seventh grade in Danvers and um, I played all the way through senior year. And it's true that unlike the book, we were actually the Danvers High field hockey team had a strong tradition for many, many years. And so we sort of inherited that tradition. And in 1989, we went pretty far. Um, as far as the state championship and those kinds of things is concerned. So, so yeah. Awesome. I can really, I played lacrosse for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of, you know, girls sports, just there's, it's, it's underrepresented in literature and in movies and TVs. Like usually when you think in terms of movies, you know, it's like Friday night lights or it's like basketball or, you know, those kinds of things. It's like, it's boys team sports. And usually if there's sports, you know, um, movies um, about women, it's usually like ice skating, like I, Tanya, you know, or we think in terms of like gymnastics, like we think of the more quote unquote, like feminine sports. But I think that the success of the women's national soccer team is sort of changing that conversation. And so it's true that I wanted to write a book that was like that focused on girls team sports. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why I drew on my background, having played a lot of girls team sports, um, to write this book. It's it's true that it's so underrepresented. I, I think the last time I saw a movie about girl sports was that I really enjoyed and enjoyed like the, the realness of it, I guess, quote unquote realness of it was Stick It, which is gymnastics. Yeah, there was again. I think it's been almost like twenty years since Bend It Like Beckham. You know, Bend It Like Beckham is this, is the soccer movie, but it's basically you know it's one of a kind. It just really mm-hmm. I forgot about that movie. I actually really like that movie too. Yeah, and I just appreciate just the this version of a woman's coming of age story because, like, I I think what you said, like, very like a lot of coming of age things are very feminine and delicate and sort of the grittiness or like the bad girl quote unquote aspect of it is usually frowned upon, but here it's really embraced and it really tapped into something that I kind of forgot about being like 17 or 18 years old where you're just kind of mad. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, growing up, my mother, my grandmother, who I love dearly, but you know, I definitely heard the word um, ladylike quite a bit when I was growing up, like, is that ladylike? You know, I would hear those kinds of things. Um, And so I wanted to create a a group of girls who were not interested in being like, 
ladylike, right? I mean, ladylike, it's, that's an image. That's a persona. That's something that you put on, that you act, right? Very few people are born ladylike. <laughs> you know? So I was interested in, in these girls who want to be authentic, but again, they're living in worlds in which authenticity, you know, for them in the 1980s, like, what does that mean to be an authentic girl, an authentic woman? Um, and so, yeah, so they're really just straining to be themselves and oftentimes what comes out is not ladylike right but it's joyous yeah I think and I think a big theme in the book is just that repression of self and just bursting through that I think so and I think because you know obviously the book is set in Danvers which was the site of the origins of the Salem witch trials um, so it is, it's, it's about this idea of living in spaces that want to keep you closed, right? That's what happened 300 years ago. You had a bunch of girls who basically would have normally had no power whatsoever. And yet for a very brief time, they were like the all powerful people in, um, the Massachusetts Bay colony when they, you know, began to say that certain people were witches. And so it was a way for these girls to have agency. You know, when I was in college, I studied the Salem Witch Trials quite a bit. And there's always all these theories as to why it happened. You know, there's theories that are economic theories that it had to do with the more rural Salem village versus Salem town. Um, there were theories that maybe the rye crop went bad and everybody was having mass hallucinations, you know. But to me, at the end of the day, it, it really is. It's just about like teen girls looking for power in whatever way, shape or form that is manifested, right? And again, that can be like a positive thing, which I think happens on this field hockey team, or in 1692, it turns out the only power that was available to them was negative power, right? I was very much interested in this idea of how, if the world only offers you certain options, how can you work around them? What can you discover about yourself? What does it mean to take on agency in your own life? So, so yes. Do you think that's why the crucible is still like such an important piece of literature. I think that that's, that's really the only thing I read in high school that really stuck with me even today. And we just talk about it so much and you make a lot of um, comparisons in your book to it. But of course, like it's based off of what happened. So bound to do that. But yeah, we definitely read The Crucible in high school. Um, I think we watched the, I I think the movie existed, maybe the Winona Ryder movie, maybe. Yeah, I remember we watched parts of it in high school. Yeah. I, I don't remember. Maybe it didn't exist. And I'm just, I watched it later probably. But obviously, again, being from Danvers, it's, there's a resonance there. And as far as why The Crucible resonates, you know, still all these years later, you know, Arthur Miller having written, it, I think, in the late 1950s or after, obviously, McCarthyism, right? So it speaks to us on different levels. First, there's, there's the idea of quote unquote hysterias in general and of people being swept up in that. And that even today, people still talk about McCarthyism in all kinds of ways, right? And so that aspect of it resonates with us. As far as like the teen girl part of it, I don't think, again, I haven't read The Crucible. I read it maybe about three years ago. I think, I don't think it resonates for with respect to the story of teen girls quite so much. But one of the reasons why I definitely am with you that it sticks with me and it's always stuck with me. And it's the reason why the Salem Witch Trials in general have, have always fascinated me. It's, it's to me, it's that fundamental question of it's your honor versus your life. Like, what would you choose? And these were people who chose their honor. Like, it's so hard for me to imagine as a modern day person that I would simply be like, I would be willing to die simply for, for the sake of, of the truth, right? Like, so 
it's, it's just all you had to do back then was just say that you were a witch and they would take pity on you and you would not be killed, right? That's all it took. Mm-hmm. And so I have always been fascinated by that. I just actually just read, I think on CNN or somewhere, that there was a high school class in Massachusetts. I don't know if you saw this, but I think in North Andover that um, they just had this, this group of, I think, eighth graders just worked to get the last woman who was accused of being a witch back in 1692 to just get her exonerated by this, you know, the state courts. Um, I didn't hear about that. That's wild. I think her name was Elizabeth Johnson. She basically fell through the cracks. So she had been sentenced to be hung. But um, as the hysteria was winding down, you know, the the governor at the time just stopped the whole thing and everybody was released from the jails. And then I guess years later, many years later, like gradually everybody was exonerated and, and, you know, their records were cleared, but for whatever reason, her record was not cleared. And in the, in the article that I just read about it, it said that possibly one of the reasons why her name was never cleared was because she was not a, a wife or a mother. She never had family. So she never had family to clear her name. And so it, it just shows you like the vulnerable, vulnerable positions that women have been in through the years and how, mm-hmm you know, what that means, obviously, you know, not to talk about something that's really sad, but I'm thinking about the things that have been happening in Afghanistan, you know, and thinking about girls there. I was hearing a story yesterday about the Afghan robotics team, which people might remember. So it was a group of teen girls who were learning about robots who were being allowed to go to school. And they came to the United States with their robot and they competed in this robot competition, which I think might've happened at MIT, maybe about four or five years ago. And people were just really excited for these teen girls, these Afghan teen girls who were doing this work. And obviously now I'm thinking about their futures, you know. Definitely. Yeah. But again, the issues facing teen girls in 1692, the issues facing teen girls in 1989, the issues facing teen girls today, really, you know, in, in many ways, obviously, there has been pro- progress, but in many ways, obviously, it's not. Um, and so sadly, these stories are still relevant for us, you know, all these years later. It's very true. You tackle so many serious and sometimes very upsetting themes in your book, but you also balance it out really gracefully with some of the best humor I've ever seen in a book. Just the conversations between the claw and Lislach, like just cracked me up reading the whole book. How did you find balancing those, the humor and the serious themes? I, I'm not somebody who plans things out when I write. I just kind of start and see what happens. And so I don't think I knew in the very, I figured it out pretty quickly, but I don't think I knew it was going to be a comedy, right? I sat down, I started writing and very quickly, very quickly like within like, I don't know how many pages I was like, oh, wait, we have this talking claw. Okay, well, that's going to dictate what, this book is going to be, you know? And so once I figured that out, something for, I think for me, it was the idea of putting the elements together, witchcraft, teen girls, the 1980s, like that to me already is funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, and so, so I figured out pretty quickly the book was going to be a comedy. And then with respect to the social commentary, so there's a lot of social commentary in the book. And I like to use the analogy of like a green smoothie. So a green smoothie, you have spinach, but hopefully you can drink it because you also have an apple and you also have blueberries and you also have like fruit that adds a sweetness. And that's what covers up the taste of the, the spinach, which you need, right? And, and Abby so, Putnam will put a banana in there. You know, many bananas, many bananas. Um, and so it's the idea for me, like to have social criticism. I didn't want the book to be didactic. I didn't want it to be preachy, but I wanted to have it in there because 
I knew that if I was going to write about the 1980s, I had to also look at the dark side of the 1980s. You know, sometimes we can think about the 80s and we can just think about the funny clothes and the hair and the music and be like, yay, the 80s, right? But let's face it, that was, uh, it was Reagan, right? Reagan was in office eight years, you know, thinking about the AIDS crisis, thinking about crack cocaine, thinking about all kinds of things. Like it was a dark time for many people in this country. And so while the girls aren't necessarily super dwelling on some you know, for example, like the AIDS crisis does come up and they talk a little bit about, I, I'm not, I misremember his name, Ryan, Ryan White, um, who was a teenager who died of AIDS. You know, so, that, so those kinds of things are mentioned, you know, in the, in the course of the book. Obviously, the African-American character, A.J. Johnson, you know, talks about race. She talks about like the Celtics. And again, many younger readers might not, hopefully there's enough information given that people who don't know the specific cultural references can still understand what's being discussed. So the idea, for example, of Larry Bird, who was a white basketball player, and Isaiah Thomas, who was a black basketball player, and the sort of interactions and conflicts that they had. So, you know, those things are in there and I want them to be in there but yeah so I knew that in order to have them in there I would also have to have you know humor for me again I, I don't really think things out so it was never I never questioned like oh I'm making this you know this large statement about society I now have to make a joke like it just kind of came naturally to me where to do that how to do that and I also I knew too so there, there are a few moments where you do get an authorial voice who kind of comes in and does say, listen, this is 1989. This is not necessarily how we would want life to be, you know, later, what have you. So there were moments when I did feel like I had to just come in there and just, and just, and say some things. And I think sometimes, you know, as writers were taught and, you know, I'm a teacher, so I know I'm probably guilty of this too, you know, of teaching don't, don't have those leaps in time or, or, don't, you know, have the voice of the author. I mean, it's never said, hey, I'm the author and I'm coming here, but there's definitely moments where the, a voice does come in. You know, we're often taught to avoid those kinds of things. But I think, you know, oftentimes when it comes to storytelling, so much of what we know is instinctual because we are all storytellers. So I'm always telling my students when they come into a fiction class, like, you know, so much about fiction because you watch movies, you watch TV, you tell stories. So, you know, things about character and point of view and setting and dialogue and all that kind of fun stuff. And so, again, when I had to have those kind of moments, I didn't shy away from them and uh, I didn't overthink it because, again, we do this kind of stuff all the time. So, yeah, I think even when you have those moments in the story, just the nature of the narrator, almost like the teen conscience, like it, that's kind of how I read the narrator as it works because we're being told the story of sort of voice. It just really works just from the nature of, I guess, like almost like a, it's like a third person all-knowing voice, I guess is what, what you would call it. It's been a long time since I've been to a writing class. <laughs> yeah, omniscient, third, third, third person omniscient, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or unlimited, yeah. And, and it's the idea, too, that, um, I mean, you're right in thinking about the idea of, of voice. People really have latched on to the idea that the book is written in first-person plural, which it obviously is. And yet, to me, first-person plural, you, I mean, let's face it, I still think a lot of the book is third person, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it is we see individual characters, but but the understanding is that it's first person. So, like I said, if, if I actually wanted to like analyze that and think about well, where is it for, you know, where does this happen? But it's just, it's just like I said, it's storytelling, and we understand it and we react to it. You know, I often, <laughs> you know, I often um, talk about. I do for whatever reason. I use the royal we. Like I often refer to myself 
me. I'm like, oh yeah, we went to the movie yesterday. And my friends are like, who did you go with? I'm like, oh no, it was just me. <laughs> you know, I kind of do that too. You know what I mean? And, and sometimes people ask me and sometimes they don't, you know, like, oh wait, is there really a we or is it just you? I'm like, oh no, it's, it's just me. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of, of voice and how voice works. And for me, when I'm writing a book, once I figure out the voice, that's, that's half the battle. So I'm working on a new project and I'm trying to figure out that the voice of this new project that I'm working on. And I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I feel like once I do, I'll be off to the races, but I just haven't, like I said, figured it out. And you have so many characters with a lot of details in their storyline. Uh, did you just, do you just have them all in your head and cause they're your creations, you can sort of organize them yourself or do you have it like written down on like a chart with all the, the strings and the... Yeah, no, I don't have a chart. The only person in the book who is based on an actual uh, living being, although she's since passed away, is the coach. So the coach of Marge Butler was very much based on our coach, um, Barb Damon, who passed away. I think she was 82. She passed away actually in 2019. So it was like right before this book came out. Um, And so legally, that's how it works. Like you can only, I'm not really sure of the specifics legally, but she's the one person who was like actually based on an actual person. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I would say of the, of the other characters, you know, they, they do remind me of certain people that I know, you know? <laughs> um, I would also say too, that uh, even beyond that, that as far as the team members go, I'm, it's, it's always a matter of degree for me, but that they are all degrees of me. Usually the degree is less than like 20%. Like, you know, but for some of the characters, you know, maybe it's 20, 22% me. Um, and so because, because of that, because they remind me of people that I know, because there's elements of them that are me, it was fairly easy for me to keep track of who is who and to really just make them distinct and have their own personalities. When I first started writing the book, it, again, I didn't take me very long to figure this out, but I had too many characters whose last names or whose first names ended in E. So it's like Tammy, Pammy. You know, oh, Amy, yeah. Bethany, Abby, you know what I mean? I was like, ah, just, and so I had to go back in very specifically. Like I wanted to have 80s names, but so I, I thought about people I knew and, you know, names that people had, but I had to have more variety because they just sounded too similar. And so I had to work on that. And then the last thing I'll say, the last way in which was helpful to differentiate is that the book is obviously a comedy. And I think it's also, it's like, it seems weird to say it for a book because you usually think about it as being only true in visual media but there's a slapstick element to it right um yeah definitely comedy that's kind of slapstick and so because there's a slapstick element to it it allowed me to think visually just about visuals about for each of these characters so that was another way to help me differentiate them and then hopefully the reader so it's like okay here's the character who has this crazy claw here's the character who has this thing on her you know on her neck here's the character who's who gets hit in the face and gets the contusion, you know, here's his character who has a, a jaw. Here's his character who eats bananas all the time, you know? And so by having that, those markers be attached to each character to have their own kind of thing. I, I hoped that it would make, it would help people to be able to differentiate between characters. It's true. You know, if I had a, a student, an undergrad or grad student who came to me and said, I'm going to write a book with 11 main characters. I'd be like, yeah, I'd like with that. Um, and so, but I guess hopefully it's possible. It, it, it actually is very helpful when you have so many characters because I, I made myself a little list of all the characters and like a thing about their storyline. And 
almost all of my things are physical descriptions like like except for abby with the bananas and then i have suyun is an actress but that's almost like a physical description but her thing is her hair right she's always dyeing her hair with kool-aid that's true oh i forgot about that one i have to write that down there's just so many great little details in this. I have to go back and read it because I, I listened to the audiobook, which also makes for a great audiobook is when you have a lot of like physical descriptions and a lot of like things happening to the characters. Like it's just one of my favorite things about audiobooks. You did it really well. Yeah, it just it really aided to being able to keep track of everybody was being like, okay, like she has the bananas and she has the claw and the splotch and um, she created Emilio and it's just and all the all the other varying characteristics of everybody. So the field hockey team, they decide that they are going to start their own grimoire, essentially, with the cover of Emilio Estevez on, which is great. I think that that sort of speaks to a lot of young women or even older women that at some point in time, a lot of people become at least a little bit interested in witchcraft. Why do you think that is? Witchcraft through the years and thinking about Wiccans, pagans, you know, all those kinds of things, particularly for women, right? There's a couple of things going on there. I think that witchcraft through the ages, I mean, I I can't really speak to, um, I guess like modern day. Yeah. Well, even, even in, obviously they would not have used the word witchcraft, you know, uh, for pagan, pagan ritual, you know, what have it. I do think that pagan ritual and all those kinds of things, it's always been about building community, you know? It's like, it's very rare for someone, I'm going to be a pagan all by myself. Like, <laughs> it could be, but, you know, it's, it's about having a coven. It's about being around other people and doing, casting spells together, right? That's where a lot of the power comes from, is the power of community. And so, quote unquote, witchcraft, paganism, you know, wiccanism is, is, has always been about bringing people together, it's partic- particularly women. It's always been about the idea of power, about having agency, Right. I think, too, um, it's that idea of, you know, as kids, we were always interested in just ways of having, again, I use the word power. But, you know, there, there's a scene in the book, obviously, where they're trying to do that, you know, light as a feather, stiff as a board, you know, which mm-hmm. is something that the kids would always try. So I think on, on different levels, A, it's about the idea of power. And I also think it's about, especially for children and even for young adults, it's about this idea in the belief that there's more to the world than just what we see right? That there is magic in the world. We want to believe in that. We want to believe we can put our fingers under somebody and like lift them up, right? Um, So I think that's an important element of it. I think as far as today is concerned, I do think that, you know, to, I wrote the book um, as Me Too, the Me Too movement was, was ramping up and becoming more of a presence in our lives. And again, speaking about women finding their voices and coming into their own power. And I think witchcraft has always been about that. I think, again, when people historically have pejority used the word witchcraft, it's been about women who didn't fit into the mold of their time. So women maybe who had too much power, women who weren't mothers, women who were too old. Um, you know, one of the women who was one of the first people to be hung back in 1692 was this woman named um, Bridget Bishop. She was basically a tavern owner. So she owned her own business. And supposedly one of the uh, allegations against her, because she had been charged with witchcraft actually before and had somehow managed to you know, get out of it. Maybe she, I don't know how she did. Maybe she paid her way out of it. But one of the things that she was sort of charged with was that she liked to wear the color red, you know? And so in just thinking about that again, about women who have empowered themselves and yet historically then 
these charges of witchcraft would be used to, to keep them in their place. But I think in a modern context, it's the idea that witchcraft has allowed women into, into forming communities and into knowing their own power as human beings, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, so it made sense to me that these girls would be interested. So a team in some ways is a coven, right? I mean, that's kind of what it is. And so I was interested in exploring that more. Yeah. And it's sort of their way of allowing themselves to be themselves. Like they say over and over again, oh, Emilio made me do it. It's really just giving themselves permission to be themselves. I haven't seen it in a long time, but you know, um, Dumbo, the original Dumbo, and then even the new Dumbo with Colin Farrell, you know, I'd forgotten that Dumbo at first has a magical feather and he believes that the feather is what can allow him to fly. And then one day when he's flying around, he drops the feather and he panics like, oh my God, I can't fly. I lost my feather. And then of course he realizes that he didn't need the feather all along, right? And so Amelia, witchcraft, you know, very similarly for these girls, you know, it's a crutch, it's their magic feather. Um, and the question is how, how long will they believe that they need that? in order to be themselves and then what happens when you begin to peel that away um, for them. Mm-hmm. I wish I had an Amelia when I was in high school. It would have helped me a lot. <laughs> you still can. I've seen them. Um, I, I keep, you know, because the pandemic happened, but my publisher, you know, had put together, like I, I'm not on social media at all. I know. <laughs> I put together this, kind of, I don't know if it was on Twitter or what it was, but it was images of the book and just kind of fun things. And they actually did, they had like, um, they had like a notebook and it had Emilio on the cover and, you know, and these various like props. And I was like, obviously I, I don't believe it was Photoshop. I think they actually made a notebook that had Emilio on the cover. And I was like, can you send that to me? <laughs> but nobody's been back in the office because my book came out um, a week before things shut down. So I actually came back to Danvers on so it was the first couple of weeks of March, I gave a reading at the state historicals at the the town historical society, and I actually went back to my high school, and I think that was all on like March 11th, and then like March oh, wow. 12th, you know, Governor Baker shut everything down, so I got in just right under the wire. So because of that, the people at Random House have not been back in the office to be able to send me, you know, this this notebook with Emilio on the cover. But I'm hoping that when they go back to the office, I'll be like, somebody send me that notebook. I'll tag Random House when I post this. It'll be like, also, please send on her book. <laughs> yeah. I'm also going to tag Emilio. Does Emilio, have you heard from Emilio? Does he know about how prominent he is in this book? Oh, no. The sad thing that I didn't, he actually was in Madison before oh. my book came out. Um, my understanding is that he's still very much involved in the business, but more as a producer and director. Mm-hmm. And he came to Madison, again, maybe libraries, maybe you know this, he has a movie about libraries. Yeah, public. Yeah. And so he was here for our, our film festival and he showed the movie and I, you know, and I, I did not know. Um, I didn't, you know, I'm like, ah, Amelia Westerman was here. So I, ha- I have not heard from him. I would imagine by, because there has been a lot of interest in Hollywood. And so for example, the book is currently being um, like a script is being written for a TV pilot. Really? I was yeah. thinking that, that this would be such a good series. So, at this point, though, many things sometimes are adapted, to, you know, but it doesn't mean it actually will make it to a screen. But it's in the first steps of that. So I would think at this point, just because, like I said, there's been a lot of, you know, it's NBC actually who bought it. So or a division of NBC. So I would think that he would have heard. But at this point, you know, just because, again, you know, Hollywood, I think is kind of a smaller world. So so alas. OK. Oh, well, fingers crossed for it. Can't, you know, 
Right? Maybe he'll, because you know, maybe there's a cameo in the book. And if so, maybe he would, you know. And I think he kind of looks the same, you know, that he the whole does. family. He does. He aged really well. Yeah, you know what I mean? They all age really well. So it's like, hey. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Oh, I'm so excited. I hope that that happens now. I'm sending good vibes that way. A lot of the book, when I was reading it, I felt like not to not to do too much of a pun, but I felt like a lot of it was magical realism. Do you have you ever had do you read a lot of magical realism or do you think that was just the nature of when you have magic in a quote unquote magic in a story? Do you think that sort of seeps through? Magical realism in my own fiction is definitely present and it's definitely something that I think about and it's definitely something that I add. So my very first book, She Reaps Each Time You're Born, is set in Vietnam. And in that story, we follow a woman who allegedly can hear the voices of the dead. And, and so that book centers around her experiences as Vietnam after the war and through the present time. And so for me, you know, when I first I began my career as a poet, I have four books of poetry that, I, that I've written. And when I first started writing fiction, it took a while, but I, I came to a point where I'm like, wait, what are my strengths? What am I up to? Why am I writing fiction? What, what am I doing? And I realized I'd like to think, again, it's my opinion, who knows, maybe other people disagree, but I'd like to think that my strengths as a writer, that one of my strengths I do think is language. And I, again, I think that's because I was a poet. I am a poet, right? And so I know like how to be concise and how to do certain things. Um, so I think that's one of my strengths. And then a second strength that I, that I realized about myself, <laughs> I've had it ever since I was a child. I have the ability, it's not just that I'm a problem solver, like, but then I'm, I'm a problem solver to like X degree when it comes to narrative, right? So um, I, for example, I, I took a two semesters worth or ish of improv, improvisation class, right? Like I love on the fly, you're given a problem and you've got to figure out how to get out of it. And that's very much what improv is, right? You're given something and you've got to come up with a story like right then and like you can get it out. Um, and that's just how my mind works, right? I just kind of built that that way. And so I realized like I'm good at just like writing myself into a corner and then having to write myself out. And so in thinking about that, the thing that I'm interested in, the reason why I like using magical realism, you know, I like to add one magical element to all of my fiction. I don't do this in poetry. I don't do it in playwriting, but in fiction, adding one magical element, I, I say that it sometimes it takes something to like the fourth, the fourth, like instead of thinking about 3D, three dimensions, right? Which, so if you're living it, or if you're writing about a realistic world, 3D world, you, you have constraints on you, right? But by adding just one magical element into that world, I say that it kind of takes it into like 4D. It allows you to do just one other thing that's kind of surprising and to go other kind of places that are unexpected. But again, you have to be very careful that you're only adding like one, that you're not adding like too many magical elements. In this book, you could you could argue that there's more magic. Like for example, the, the, the claw can speak, right? So you could argue, okay, is that a magical element in addition to like the hive mind that, that they have going on? But to me, they're kind of related. So I didn't really think of them as, you know, having two separate magical elements. So yes, um, in my next book, which is set in Mongolia, it's a twin, one who is a monk, who have been tasked with finding the reincarnation of uh, an important llama. And again, re- people do, people go out and look for a reincarnation. So like people, that's like pe- certain monks are tasked with that in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And so in my novel, these, this one monk and his brother who had been a monk are tasked with going out to find this this reincarnation and the, the magical element there is that because they're twins that they can read each other's minds or they can share thoughts 
Um, and that's just, and that's the only magical element. You could argue that maybe there's a magical element just because reincarnation itself is kind of mystical, right? But like I said, the central magical element is just simply there, sharing of thoughts. And so, like I said, so I am very much interested in the idea of how by adding just one supernatural element to a work, what that does for it. So Awesome. Well, it really works in this book. And um, what is your next book called? So it's called When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. And I, I do like long titles. Awesome. And when, when do you think it'll be released? So it'll be released February 22nd. Awesome. I'm excited for it. Yeah, that week in particular, because again, I've, I now during the pandemic, I really have gotten into playwriting and playwriting is, it's a different world because you actually need stuff. You need people, you need actors, you need a stage, you need a company that believes in your work and is willing to spend the money to actually mount a production. It's also true that I, in some ways I, I pick the worst time to try and make an entry into because theaters have closed down, theaters are you know really struggling because of the pandemic. And so in some ways it hasn't been the best moment to be like, ah, I'm gonna stop writing plays. But so that week in February, actually, I'm very fortunate that there's a, a great, a tremendous theater company here in Madison where I live that's doing like cutting edge work and is very progressive and, you know, stages their productions in our Overture Center, which is our art center, which is this amazing space for the opera and the ballet and everybody performs. So I'm very fortunate that they, uh, that my play called The Mytilenean Debate will be part of their season this year. So it will be staged in February of 2022. So it's like the same week my novel is coming out on Tuesday. And then my play premieres that Thursday. So I'm going to have a very, a very busy spring. But I'm That is a big week. Lots of good things going around. I, the book's been out for a while. So I'm glad that people are still enjoying it and still reading it and still thinking about it. So. Yeah, I, uh, I had, I forget how I found it. But I was looking for some, I forget I think it might have been in a magazine or something and I just because again since it it, it did um I didn't know anything about it but it, it did win that library association award which is called the Alex yeah so I, I think that's how I found it I didn't I don't know that much about it but I, I guess like it, it helps get your book in the hands of librarians and school librarians and librarians everywhere so I'm like hey yeah so I, I actually I had just ordered it for the library because I was listening to it and then I was like I'm about to interview this wonderful author and I don't actually have the book in the library. So I got a quick order in of it and it's, it's really nice. It's nice and bright. And I saw that there were two versions. I think the paperback is pink and then this one is green. So I got the, I got the hardcover. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for talking to me today and I look forward to your next book and good luck with your play. It sounds really great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you.